This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Just to thank people who have expressed sympathy, uh, grace towards me and Nays. Uh, I buried my mum on Monday, and uh, we sang Cornerstone. So uh, I tried not to get too emotional. I was going to come to the front and say something very moving, but I thought I better not. Uh, yeah. So thank you for those people who expressed love. I feel um, I feel good, but I feel very exhausted in terms of just for three weeks thinking. Is it today? Is it today? Is it today? Uh, but it was a great send-off, wasn't it? And um, I really felt God was honoured and my mum was honoured. and So that was all good. More prepared this week, but people said to me that last week was quite good even though I wasn't prepared, so maybe I'm just wasting my time preparing. I don't know. Anyway, let me pray and that's going to work. Don't answer that. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. But we, Lord, we thank you for you, Jesus, the living word. Uh, the cornerstone, the one whose hope we rest upon, the one whose one who we hope in, the one whose goodness and grace has come to us. And Lord, I pray as we journey on with the life of David, I pray that you would come front and centre through this what's preached. I pray that you'd stir us afresh to love you more, to go out from this building, uh, to live lives committed to honouring you and seeing the world one for your great name. Amen. Have you ever had that feeling of uh, deep despair when, when all your kind of well-crafted plans uh, and well-tightly-held expectations have kind of have fallen down? You've kind of had this plan, you thought, uh, you know, God was in it, this is definitely what we wanted to do, this is definitely what I feel right to do. And then, and then it just hasn't come off. Has anybody had that, or is it just me? Yeah, a few of you. You get this kind of thing where you think, "All right, I've worked it out, I've crafted it out, I've planned it out," and, and then it doesn't happen, and you feel gutted. Uh, and then what? But but the interesting thing is sometimes, actually, then something better comes along. Yeah. So I remember when we were trying to get the kids into schools in Cheltenham. People obsess about schools in Cheltenham. It's kind of education is a little bit of a god, so please don't mishear me about that. But we're trying to get our kids into the local school where we lived at the time, which is Bourneside. We uh, prayed, we fasted, we appealed. We didn't get in. We were gutted, thinking, what's all that about? And then we applied to Balcaris, which is uh, the other way from us where we live, uh, and which is, in theory, harder to get into. And we got in. And at the time, I thought, oh, how amazing. Uh, at the other time, it's more obvious is that we were planning as a, a church to go to meet at the university and um, I think there might be a slide up somewhere but we were planning to meet at the university and uh, it was all good to go last September, not this one, last September all good to go at the university uh, we signed it all off, the chaplain had said yes you can come and then right at the very last minute it all closed down 
And I was gutted, and I was chasing uh, in prayer and planning, chasing to go to the university. And then um, we just had a leaders' meeting, and, and I think Vic said, why don't you go to the ladies' college? I thought, well, the ladies' college are not interested in taking people. Just went on the website, there it was, a click-down button for events. And we were supposed to be going in a small hall across, which would be nice and cosy for us, particularly this Sunday, would be nice and cosy. And then that fell down and they said you can't come and I remember falling face down on the floor and saying God this is I don't want to do this it's too much effort just answer our prayers for once just do what I've you know just do what we've asked you for once just you know we pray you come through isn't that how it's supposed to be isn't that what we signed up to do we say yeah yeah I I pray for blessing and God you answer that that's the kind of contract we made isn't it and then when God says no you think ah man how am I going to cope with that but well, the interesting thing is I contacted the guys here and they said, look, we're really, really sorry that you're not being able to go over there in the hall, but how about this theatre? It's normally £1,000 a week. Um, it might be a bit big for you, but do you fancy it? Now, I'm really delighted we're here. Yeah? So it's interesting how sometimes uh, you, know, you have these crushing disappointments and then what happens is, and you prayed for it, and you believed for it, and you fasted for it, and everybody else prayed for it and believed for it, and then you got a no. And you think, well, what's all that about? How does that happen? What happens when you get a no, uh, and then something better comes along? And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at um, what happens when, when God says no. Um, but, but in this case, he's got something more. So I've called it God has more. I remember commenting about these situations, that if God had answered all my prayers, we'd be in a right mess. Because what happens is you pray for something, and then actually God says no, and you think, oh, right. And then what happens is you, you, you work through, and it's much, much better. And that's what we've got this morning, is we're going to work through the, the life of David. We're going to look at that gut-wrenching roller coaster, where David kind of believed for something for all his life. Uh, we mentioned a little bit of that last week, believed for something all his life, and then he gets a no. It's not you, it's not going to happen. But then God gives him something better. Um, so it's, it's a fairly long reading. It should come up there. It's 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, it's also, so also in Chronicles, but I'm just reading from 2 Samuel, same passage. After the king, that would be David, settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Nathan the prophet is his kind of buddy, as well as the prophet to the king, here am I living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. It's a kind of rhetorical question. Are you the one to build a house, build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of, up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with my tent as a dwelling. Whenever I've moved with all the Israelites, did, any, did I ever say to any of the rulers who I commended to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built a house of cedar for me? Now then, tell my servant David, this is the, what the Lord Almighty said. I took you from the pasture, from attending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off all your enemies before you. Now, I will make your name great, like the names, names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so, you can, so they can have a home of their own and a place of rest, and also give you rest from all your enemies. 
The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over, you'll rest with your ancestors. I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build my build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from, be- from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me, and your sh- throne shall be established forever." Nathan reported to David all the words of the entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat down before the Lord and said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you've brought me this far? And as if it was not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you've spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere man or a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, Sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to our will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. So in this story, we get this situation where David's been planning and uh, praying for something, and then he gets a no in the middle of the night. And so let's just work through that. If you remember last week, David had become king, and he'd become king first over Judah, and then over... Do come in, guys. (laughs) He became king over Judah and then over Israel, and um, he'd kind of had the first, you know, like the first hundred hundred days. They always test an American president by the first hundred days of their reign. Uh, it started with Roosevelt, who basically did uh, so much in his first hundred days that they thought that is the benchmark. You've got to get loads of stuff done in your first hundred days. So, so David, if you remember, he can anyone remember what he did? What was the first thing he did when he became king? From last week, just trying to test if anything went in. <laughs> yeah, he got the ark. He brought the ark back to, to, to Jerusalem. Before that, he had to... Captured, got the ark, captured Jerusalem. So he's captured Jerusalem, got the ark, and the other thing that I didn't talk about last week is he's, he, he has another battle with the Philistines. So basically, that's what happens in the first hundred days. Captures Jerusalem, never been captured in 600 years. He, he beats the Philistines, and he brings the ark back. Obviously, somebody died in the process, so they did it properly. He brings it out back to Jerusalem. And then, but David is basically at a time of rest. It's almost like uh, when I was looking for a picture about the time of rest, I thought, yes, that would be nice. David goes to this point of rest. It says, now David, when the king had settled in his palace. It's a nice word, isn't it? In some sense, it's settled. In other words, it's a dangerous word. It's Lord had, it's, the king had settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from his enemies. It's an interesting question as I'm preparing this. I'm thinking, what does your mind go to? What do you think about when you've got free time? What, what, what are you processing when you've got free, free time? What, what's in your head? What do you think about? What do you think, oh, I'd like to do? I know my son Jotham, he thinks about food. Um, so we went to university to look around the university yesterday, and, um, I, and I, I, he just wanted to have food. And I said, well, let's just get a burger. And he said, can we go and get steak? I said, well, I can't really afford it. He said, I'll pay. <laughs> so he paid his half. And then he negotiated a little bit less than half. So he paid about 40%. <laughs> but then that's Jotham, isn't it? And, uh, but what does your mind go, for, go to? I mean, some of you, when you've got free time, your mind might go to stuff that you're a bit embarrassed about. But for David, his mind 
uh, goes to, what he wants to do when he's got this moment to think. It tells him what his true passion is. And that David's true passion, if you remember, over this series is to do what? Now you're all struggling again, but I'll, I'll, I'll just... What's David's passion in this? What does he want to do? When he, what kept him awake as a young kid? What did we talk about last week? What is it? He wants to do what? He wants to build a house for the Lord. Thank you. So he wants to serve the Lord by building a house for God. And so... Uh, it's interesting that, that when, da- when King David is settled in his palace at rest from his enemies, David's thought moved to a Bible passage, I believe, that has those words in. It's almost like the writer to, of Samuel, we don't know who it was, but the writer of Samuel, it's almost that sets up people who knew their Bible. You've got to remember, we live in a world of masses of information, so you forget even the basic kind of stuff about the Bible, because it's just like that. But if that was the only bit you had, the only bit of information, the only thing you could read, you knew it really well. And David, as, uh, as a king, would have had to read and re- uh, read this whole of the Bible. In fact, he'd have to write out the whole of the Old Testament as part of his training. To become king, he had to write it out by hand, the first five books. So he would have known that. And his mind goes to, I think, uh, and the way that it's set up, he goes to Deuteronomy 12, where God says this through Moses, says you will cross the Jordan and, there's that word, settle in the land the Lord your God is going to give you as an inheritance. And he will give you rest from your enemies around you. See how the the two passages are speaking to each other. And so you'll live in safety. Then, to the place the Lord your God will choose as his dwelling for his name, there you're to bring everything I command you, burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, special offerings, choice possessions, and rejoice before the Lord your God. You can see that David thought, if, if it's a time where there's no war, rest from your enemies, that there's a place where you're settled in the land, David thought the next step is build a house for God. Build a place where God is going to choose as a dwelling for his name. So I think David's incredibly excited. He's got this kind of week off, or he's got this month off, and he's got this moment, and he's just contemplating, he says, this is it. Now, it's really interesting. I don't know if, 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 if we expect God to actually fulfill what he says. We kind of think, well, that's for somebody else or for another time. But David, he thinks, no, God says something, so he's going to do it. So he comes and thinks, this is it, game on. That, that it's time to, to build, the, build the house of God. So he says with enthusiasm to his friend, Nathan, his confidant, who's the prophet, he says, here am I living in a house of cedar, it's a palace, well, the ark of the God, ark of God remains in a tent. He says it's totally wrong that I live in this lovely house in this wealthy condition as the king, and actually the house of God is in a tent. Um, and I, I love that. I love the fact that actually David thinks that, that that God's house, that God's purposes, should be more resourced than his own. Because I, I think what happens is that that in my life, and I think in our lives, we we spend much much more on our mortgages and rent than we do on God's purposes. In fact, in, in, in later on, after David, when the, 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 the temple gets built and then knocked down and they want to rebuild it uh, a second time, uh, the prophet Haggai says this to uh, the people of Israel. He says, Is it a time for you to, to live in panelled houses while the house of the Lord lies in ruins? David kind of gets, No, it's not right that I'm comfy and I've got my settled life, but God's house is in a mess. And I think in, 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 the, world, in the, the world we live today, so many of us are consumed with, with our kind of our stuff, our panelled houses. I haven't got panelling, it's just 
you know, wallpaper, plaster. But, you know, we're so consumed with our stuff that actually we're not really consumed with God's, God's stuff. But David says, no, I've got all this beautiful stuff, but actually I'm not content. And I think that, that you, just having a nice house will not lead to contentment. One of the really interesting things is that my relatives on both sides are not Christians. Uh, but at the funeral, so I would say that my relatives on my dad's side uh, worked in the city and I've got, you know, the many millions. And my mum's uh, my brother worked in business and he's got many millions. But actually, I felt there was a hollowness about them. There was a lack of contentment, whereas my mum, who didn't have much... Her life was full and rich. And I think, actually, you're never going to be happy. And if you're a Christian, you're never going to be happy by just panelling your house. That somewhere along the line, something's got to shake you up and say, this isn't right. This isn't right. We need to, to, um, to, to panel God's house. We need to build God's house. Now, it's not wrong to own a house. It's not even wrong, wrong to own a big house. But we just want to say, God, we want to say, we want to build a house for you. And that's what David says, I want to build a house for you. I know that's going to be much more satisfying than having a nice house for me. Now, interesting, Dave, David, Dave, I'm calling him Dave, I'm getting quite familiar with him. David, is, um, he says to his friend, I've got an idea. He says, look, is it right for me to be in a panel house while God's house is, uh, is not built? He says, and it's obviously, it's like the, the question is like a rhetorical thing. He's saying, I want to build this house. I've got the wherewithal. I'm the king. I've got the wherewithal. I'm not going to knock my house down. I'm going to build this house. I'm going to build this great big temple for God. I've got the plans. I've got the idea. I know exactly where it's meant to be. It's at the place where Abraham was uh, was going to sacrifice Isaac. It's the place where Melchizedek, we talked about that, was there. I know exactly where it is. And well, let's get it built. So he says to his friend, he says, I want to build a house for God. And his friend, what does his friend say? Whatever you have in your mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That's nice, isn't it? That is really nice. But I sometimes find that some t- people... Yes. I'll explain that image in a moment. Yes. But I sometimes find that people sometimes say, God has told me, and they've got no friends. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't speak to people on their own. But sometimes what does happen is, people come to me as a church leader, God has told me X, God has told me Y, God has told me Z. And they never checked it with their friend. In fact, they haven't got a Christian friend, really. In fact, they're not open. Most of the people who say to me, God has told me X and Y and Z, haven't got a Christian friend. They haven't got a friend and say, hey, Nathan, you know, I think we should build a house for God. What do you think? That is a good way to process what you're going to do in your life. It is not a good idea to say, God has told me, and everyone else is thinking, crazy idea. I once had a guy come to me and said, God told me to get divorced. Now, if he asked his friends, they would say, God never says that. You got it wrong. And sometimes people say, God has told me, and they never check it with a friend. And they come to leaders and say, God has told me, and what are you supposed to say? You didn't hear from God? But it doesn't seem right. And I think it's, it's a bit worrying. But, but David is in this... Very powerful three, hence the three fingers. David is in this very powerful three. In this church, we, we say, let's have a friend you can talk to. Let's have somebody you can share life with. Somebody who, who you take your mask off and say, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking about this job. Or I'm thinking about this. Are we doing this? I'm, I'll feel called to do that or whatever. And you open your life and say, what do you think? Now, I think Nathan doesn't just think uh, David's a king. I'll say what he wants to hear. I think he gives him a good answer. 
He says, whatever you want to do, you want to build a house of God, that's a great idea, get on with it. In fact, um, uh, Lucy came to me and said, uh, that she emailed me actually and said, I, I, I want to do a parenting course uh, with their group, the G1C that's over in Cleve and Presbury. Uh, I, I want to do a parenting course. And I wish I'd replied, God is good, do whatever's in your heart, Lucy. God is with you. <laughs> but I didn't. I said, yes, it's a great idea. It's a great idea. You've got a good idea, go with it. And most of the good ideas in this church, they haven't come from me. Amen. Give me five. <laughs> They've not come from Andy either. <laughs> so, you know, the idea to do football and like try and reach out to people, that came from, from Mark and some people. And that, oh, maybe you had a little slice of that. <laughs> and then let's do a mums and tots coffee morning. Yeah, that didn't come from us. Let, let, let's... Somebody's working on a, a book group that reaches, that has some Christians and some non-Christians and connects. And, and, or they're working on a parenting course. I was telling one a church leader that somebody had an idea in our church. And I said, yes. And she said, well, that's amazing. You must have an amazing church. <laughs> somebody had an idea. And we said, yes, let's do it. And actually, it's great that David said, I've got an idea. You know, this is what I've been living for. This is, the, this is the very thing I wanted since I was a little kid. Now's the time. Shall I do it? And Nathan says, go on, buddy. Let's do it. I think David's excited. He doesn't even need to pray about that one. He's just, yeah, it's obvious. Let's build a house for God. Nathan goes away, and he's excited as well, but he prays. I don't know if they wear a baseball hat, but I thought it was a cool picture. <laughs> and he prays. And in the night, God says to him, no, no. No, no. Now, you've got to tell David that this isn't a good idea. I'm, I'm sure Nathan's processing. Prophetically, he's hearing from God. He's good at hearing from God. And he's, he's processing, how can this not be a good idea? Sounds like a great idea. Let's build this brilliant temple. All the other nations around have got these massive temples that say God is awesome. Surely we need a bigger and better one. Well, everyone can see that God is awesome. But God says, no, no, no. The, the building permit is withdrawn. God says, no. And if God had left it there, it would have been pretty crushing, wouldn't it? But actually, God says a lot more things. But imagine you're David the next morning... David's one of the most powerful rulers around at the time, although Nathan's his friend, he's also the prophet to the king. And um, what you find through the Bible is that the prophets didn't use to tell the kings anything they wanted to, they didn't like. And also they would, uh, if the prophet said to the king something they didn't like, they'd get rid of him, get another prophet. So David, Nathan's really brave and says, actually we've got some really bad news. I've got some really bad news. He asked him a rhetorical question. Are you the one to build a house for me to dwell in? And David must have thought, of course, of course I am. I'm the perfect candidate. But actually it then says, no, 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 you, you actually got it a bit wrong, David. This is your big dream and actually God's saying no. God says to him, I'm not interested in a building at all. I'm not interested in a building at all. He says, I'm not dwelling in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. Interesting, he brings them out of Egypt. They don't bring him out of Egypt, even though they were carrying the box and made a box and carried the box. God always carries us. We don't carry him. Um, I've, been moved, I've been moved from place to place with a tent as my dwelling, 
Whenever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers who I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, why have you not built a house for me? God, he never, God never once said, I need a building. He never once said, I need a building. David says, we better build a building. And God says, you don't need a building. It's really interesting. People are more interested in buildings than we are, than God is. Yeah? So you move here. We move here. And, I, 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 and they're not here this week. I hope they do come back. But uh, a couple said, oh, now it shows that, you know, I've said this before, that, that, that God, you're really serious. God first. Let's take them serious. They're meeting in this really big venue. You know, they were meeting there, and it's not very impressive at Hester's Way, and now you're on Montpellier. Wow. That, that, that God really must be with you. It must be really impressive. This must be the happening thing. And we get obsessed with buildings, don't we? And people through the ages have been building temples and cathedrals for God, but God's never asked once for a temple or cathedral. He's not impressed with temples and cathedrals. In fact, the Apostle Paul, standing in front of what is perhaps one of the most iconic temples in the world, falling down at the moment, surrounded by traffic in Athens, the Acropolis, he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth, and, say it with me, does not live in temples built by human hands. There's nothing we can build for God that he needs. He does not live in temples built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he's the one who gives life and breath to everything. Where's God most glorified? Is he glorified with a golden box with two angels carried on poles? Is he glorified by an impressive temple? Actually, there's a little hint where God's most glorified. What do you think? Why don't you turn a person next to you? If you're not sitting there next to you, you might think, hmm. Answer the question, when is God most glorified? How is God most glorified? How is God shown to be the God of heaven and earth? Turn to the person next to you and answer that question. Okay, anyone want to play? Anyone want to play? I've said, I've set up, God's not most glorified by buildings. What is God most glorified by? Matt wants, do you, do you want to play Matt? Or are you just stretching? Okay, that's the slide. I thought Matt's new here this morning. We're going to... Yes, Good. But I'm, I, I'll, I'll take that as a kind of king in the game. I'll tell you, what were you going to go for? Is creation praising him? Can do you want to? I'll let you. I'll let you. I'll let you get the. Okay. Does anyone else want to play? Yeah. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Do you want to put that in kind of everyday language for the rest of us? Somebody. Yes. I mean, I think that's what's been said here and what's been said here. But actually, God's most glorified. In us. He's not glorified by buildings, he's glorified by us. So actually, although this is a nice building, because he's most delighted by what happens in us. And why do we know that? Because actually, God gives David a broad hint. Actually, I'm not really interested in being glorified by building, but I'm quite interested in being glorified in people. And this is what he says. I took you from the pasture. You're just a shepherd boy, tending the flock. Nobody knew your name. Your dad even forgot you. You weren't important. You were the youngest kid in the family. I took you from there and appointed you to be, you, uh, appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. You thought you were doing it? No, I was doing it. And I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. God loves to do that. 
He loves to, to take people, and I prayed it earlier probably because it was in my preparation. He loves to take people from the ashes, and what's it say, the verse? And seat them with the princes. That's most glorifying. I have been around some spectacular church buildings, but actually I've never cried in one church building. But when somebody tells their story of how God took them from nowhere, from sin and death, and they've got no hope and they've got no life, and God seated them and made them a king, with, made them sons of the king, that makes me weep. That's the most exciting thing. In fact, the whole book is about that. In fact, at the beginning, if you remember way back in Pates, the very first thing of the book is Hannah, who's the mother of Samuel, who's the kind of name on the book. At the prologue of the book, she says this, he raises the poor, God, Jesus, raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honor. And God is most glorified by that. Do you believe it? So we can get excited about this building, but God's most glorified by what God gets excited by what he does in us. So what happens is it's saying, like, well, you've got the wrong point. I'm not looking for a great building. I'm looking to build a people. I think David's blown away with the emotion. His lifelong ambition is extinguished. David is drenched by the God who has more. But what God does is he floods on him, he pours over him, he cascades over him amazing promises. He says, now this is what you wanted to do, now this is what I'm going to do. Listen to God's first person I pronoun in here. I will make your name great. You want to make a name great for me? I'm going to make your name great. I will provide a place for my people Israel and plant them. Let me just pause there. When you hear the word plant, not church plant, that should resonate with you a place. Where does God plant? Where does God plant? Right at the beginning of the story, you need to come on GTS, some of you, and do Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The garden. It says, God stooped down and planted. He makes an Eden. That's when you, when you read plant there, think, what kind of... I'll make your name great. I'll provide a place for my people Israel and plant them in Eden. So they can have a home of their own and a place of rest, a place where God is. It's a great place. Eden. New Eden. And then the Lord declares to you that he himself will establish a house for you. There's a little pun going on here. David wants to build a physical house, but, but God is going to do what? A house. He's going to build a dynasty. I am going to, you want to build a house for me, but I'm going to build a dynasty for you. When you're dead and gone. Oh dear. Sometimes that's how it works in God's economy. We don't get to see everything that, that we've believed for and prayed for and God promised for. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring. The, the word there is a seed or offspring. Uh, to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, at this point, you probably know who's being talked about, but let's just not mention his name for a minute or two. Does anybody know where else in the Bible God makes a big promise, I'm going to make your name great? To Abraham. Right at the beginning of this big story, God says to Abraham, the guy he took from nowhere and made him to inherit a land, the guy he took from nothing to make him rich, the guy who had no kids, he said, I'm going to give to your seed, your offspring, 
I'm going to give you the whole land and I'm going to bless all the world through you. I'm going to make you great. It says, I will bless you. It says in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing and all the peoples of the earth will bless for you. And to your offspring I give this land. When, when that sense of I'm going to make your name great, David would have thought, this is, a, this is like an Abraham promise. This is a massive promise here. And also, does anybody know where we've heard that word offspring before or seed? Again, you need to do GTS. It's in Genesis. Right at the beginning, right at the beginning, it says, it, uh, God says to Eve, I will make your offspring to crush the head of the serpent. These are massive promises. This is like... The massive promise to Abraham, to, to Abraham. This is like the massive promise that goes right back to the beginning. And God's like tying that up and tying it up and then pointing it forward and saying, actually, it's going to be through you. But not through you, David, but through somebody who's a son of David, somebody who's going to be born from David, who's going to make a new Eden, who's going to make a place where God dwells, who's going to make a place where we rest from our enemies, who's going to make a place where who's going to sit on the throne and rule and bless the nations. All of the promises of God suddenly are focused down in this. You're not going to build a building, but are you going to do this for me? And there's a little thing in there that's perhaps a bit, a bit difficult. Because it says about, he says that uh, this, this son, he says, whose father is he going to be? Who's the father of this son? There's two answers. The offspring of David, so we'll give you that one. Who's the other father? Do you remember when I read it? It said, God says, I will be a father to him. He's a son of David who's a son of God. Where all the promises, all the energy and the thrust of all what God wants to do is kind of focused in him. And then it says, when he when he's does wrong, something, oh, that can't be Jesus. But actually, I think he's identifying with us when he does wrong. It's, it is Jesus here. It says, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him. This is Jesus, isn't it? it David, God says to David, you're going to build a building. He says, but actually, out of your body is going to come Jesus. The one who, who's the answer to all the, the world's needs is the one who's going to create this rest where the world is in chaos. He's going to one who's going to rule well where the world rules so badly. He's going to establish his goodness and mercy and bless the nations. He's going to be the one who inherits the earth. But he's going to do it through suffering. He's going to do it by dying for your sin. He's going to do it by dying in your place. All the stuff that's wrong with the world, Jesus is going to wrap it all up and he's going to be punished and then all that God promised to, to Abraham is going to be found and come true in him. I think there's a slide here that says the true and better. Is it there? Okay. So this is all in here. Jesus is the true temple. Dave wants to build a temple for, for God to dwell when Jesus walked on the earth, he was God's dwelling place. You know what they called him as a little boy? You should call his name Emmanuel, God with us. They are God's throne. Do you know where, where Uzzah touched, reached out last week, didn't he reached out and touched the ark? What happened to him? He dies. What happens when lepers and broken people reached out and touched Jesus? Life. He's the true heart, the true presence of God who you can touch and see and delight in. He's the true land. 
Jesus is the land. He's the place where you find Eden, where you find paradise, where you find blessing and goodness and God with you. As God walked with them in the, it says, God walked with them in Eden in the cooler day. Jesus is the one. He's the offspring of Abraham who, who says in Romans that he would be the heir of the whole world. All the whole world is coming to him. He's the son of David who's going to be the king forever. He's going to reign on the throne forever. He's the, the king who's going to bless the nations. Most kings rule the nations and grasp and take for themselves, but God is pours himself out in goodness to the nations. He's the great name that saves. It says, doesn't it? Peter says in Acts, there's no other name in the whole world, the greatest name that under heaven by which can be saved than Jesus. He's the name that saves. He's the suffering son punished for our sin. And this is what it says. It says, although I'll, he'll be flogged and punished with the uh, punishment of men, I'll never take my love from him. I think Jesus, uh, suddenly, this is it. It's almost like Nathan says, uh, you want to build a building for me, but I'm going to give you Jesus. And, and, and I think he's complete. Uh, Peter's, uh, not Peter, who is it? David, thank you. David is completely overwhelmed. It's almost like... Whew. As David went and sat down in God's presence, it's almost like, this is, ex- this is too much. I can't take it in, I'm just going to sit down. And I think he sits in God's presence and just processes. Wow. When you see Jesus, all your plans, all your best efforts, all your dreams... You're happy for God to say, there no more, because it's him that we want. And that's what David gets promised. He says, you're going to not even see it, you're going to die. And he says, I'm still happy. I'll die happy, because I've seen Jesus. I've seen the promised one, the son of David. He announced, David wants to build a little local thing. And God says, here's this cosmic plan for the whole world. God first, we want to do a little local thing here, don't we? It'd be quite nice to have these seats filled and then take that little red thing, thank you, Mark, and fill these seats, wouldn't it? And that, now, would we feel good when that was all done? We kind of would, wouldn't we? I know I would, a bit. But I felt as preparing it. Howard, it's not enough. It's not enough for us just to fill the building. It's not enough to say, well, we're at the Parabola Arts Centre. What's the plan? We'd like to build a church for God. We'd like to build a house for God. Wouldn't that be handy? Wouldn't that be nice? Take our little slice of the action. I think God's want to say it right at the start of this journey. That's much too small. That's much too small. I want you to be in love with Jesus. I want you to glimpse Jesus. I want you to glimpse Jesus so much that, that it takes your breath away and you just have to sit down in front of God and say, this is amazing. You're so amazing. This is what David says. He says, David prays. I think he's kind of sighing a bit. Oh, man. Lost for words, and but he says, who am I? Who am I? Oh, sovereign Lord. And who's my family that you've brought me this far? You brought me from nothing. You made me the king. But actually, that was never going to be enough in your sight, oh, sovereign Lord, because you've spoken about the future of the house of your servant. He says, is this the usual way that you deal with us? You know, you're supposed to be the scary God that if we look at your box, we die. If we touch it, we toast. Is this the usual way? Is this your normal way that you're going to do things and just be so gracious? 
What can I say? I finish with this. The whole of Israel's story, the whole of Israel's story for the next thousand years is waiting for the guy to come. Who is this son of David? Solomon builds an amazing big temple, but actually he messes up. It's not him. King after king after king, if you read Kings, it says, he didn't follow God, he didn't follow God, he didn't follow God, he did. He didn't follow God. And they're waiting. Who's this one to come? And you know what happened is they built their temple by then. It was the third go at this building, this building that that Herod had built. And they were so concerned with this building and so concerned with their rituals that when God came, what happened? They didn't recognize him. It says in John, he came to his own, but his own received him not. You can be doing church and filling buildings and doing all the right stuff and God comes and you don't recognize him. You're just living in your paneled house, playing at church. We don't want to be those people. We don't want to be those people. Jesus comes as a true temple. Destroy this temple and build it in three days. This is talking about his body. He's the true sacrifice for sin. Guys, it's too small for us just to try and fill this building. God's called us to so much more. We're adopted into his family. We're in the, uh, if you use the, the lines from Lord of the Rings, we're in the line of kings. And we are those. And we are here to see the return of the king, aren't we? We're part of his, his line. We're his church. What's true for him? Let's finish with this. What's true for him is true for us. We're the temple, says Paul, Peter of Living stones made of you and me. We're we're the ark. If people touch this church, they should find, it says there, life. We're the Eden. Oh, man, people need to get saved and say, man, my life was a mess, but I found rest. We're the offspring of Abram. We're the heirs of the whole world. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are the heir, not hair, you're the heir of the whole world. Say that to the person next to you. He's promised it to his son and he's promised it to us. It says the meek shall inherit the earth. The followers of Jesus, we get the whole earth. That's what we're after. We're not just after this space while the whole of Britain goes to hell. Are we? We're not after filling this space with just the Christians that transfer from other churches while Cheltenham dies in secular materialism. We're not into that. That's our inheritance. We want that out there, do we? Thanks, Andy. Do we want that? Yeah. <laughs> we're the, let me finish with these. We're the, we're the sons of David, root, seated with Christ in heavenly places. We're the kings to bless the nations. We are to bless the nations. Where Christians go, the nations get blessed. I'm not talking about pulp-driven crusades. I'm talking about people of God. We're the ones where, saved by his great name, where he's glorified. His name is made great when you live a gospel life. But we're also the suffering sons, the the ones who say, I'm willing to take six steps and then make the sacrifice. I'm willing to take up my cross and follow him. And we are the sons of God, adopted by God. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.